Hey everyone, uh, I just wanted to take a moment and uh, you know extend an apology uh, before this episode gets started. We had an incident and it led to some very poor recording quality, and uh, it, it's my fault. And, and I feel like I owe you all an apology for this. So Ryan and I strive for good quality. Uh, in as far as our audio is concerned with this podcast, and unfortunately, we missed the bar. I missed the bar on this one. Uh, so I feel like I wanted to offer, offer that apology first of all, and we will certainly do better going forward in double-checking to make sure all our settings are correct. <laughs> but anyway, without further ado, uh, this is the uh, less-than-stellar audio quality version of the conversation we had for Unisalus Victus. Requested. One Mark 5 ECM unit, 1,000 kilometers of fullerene cable, one low-yield nuclear warhead. Purpose, surprise party for foreign dignitary. Drive Back the Night, the Andromeda Series podcast. I'm Benito Noriega, the genetic reincarnation of Ethan Maestrie. And I am John Smith, the genetic reincarnation of Ryan Mazzocco. Each week we bring you an episode of Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, and we discuss it to see what we like and dislike, and uh, some facts about the show as well. This week we've called a truce, haven't we, John? Well, yeah, I guess you could say not so much truce, really, but uh, more of a standoff. Yeah, my weapons are down. As are mine. And, uh, you know, I'm going to keep working at getting my systems up and running. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on mine, too. Yeah, yeah. But we have a show, and you know what? We can we can finish this duel after we have our show out of the way, what do you say? Uh, yeah, hopefully it will take less than four hours. Okay, yeah. Uh, I got my pad with me. And coincidentally, I've got uh, fun facts on it, so okay. I'm going to keep working, but I'm going to go over my fun facts while we're out of here. All right, you read that while I work on my weapon system. Okay. Uh, Adrian Hughes is one of the guest stars in this particular episode, Una Salas Victus, and he is reprising his role as Fleet Marshal Kalkulin, and so we get to see him again in that role. Uh, we also have actress Kendall Cross, and she plays Parvati Kuchua. I think that's the pronunciation. I wasn't quite certain on that, but I'm going to go with it. And uh, this is the first of uh, three appearances that she's going to make on the Andromeda series. And so we can have that to look forward to. She also has appeared in many a television series, including Highlander and Smallville, and even in such films as The Butterfly Effect and in X-Men 2. So uh, good to see our guest actress, Kendall Cross, in this episode. And that's all I've got. Wow. Oh, I would like to mention this is a, uh, a the second episode in a row that we've had by writers Zach Stentz and actually Edward Miller. I wonder if we're going to get any action in this one. Eh, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, why don't you go into a summary and let us know if there is any action in Una Salus Victus. The Andromeda is escorting a convoy of latest relief ships loaded with medical personnel and supplies to Rodina where there is apparently a nasty outbreak of Macri fever. Rev Bim sends a message, he is apparently already there assisting in relief efforts, and lets them know that they are essentially these people's last hope. Macri fever has a 95% mortality rate, 
which translates to about 31 million dead if they don't make it in time. Should be fine. All they have to do is escort the unarmed convoy through Acheron, a system that is chock full of old high guard missile batteries operated by psychopathic Drago Katzoff and hope that Dylan and Tyr can neutralize Amichian command center down on the planet. Dylan and Tyr are making their way through the forest. They have a strategic disagreement as Dylan wants to take a high-ranking dragon prisoner and get his command codes, while Tyr would rather just kill them all. It gets heated, but it all works out when Tyr deciphers the command codes from a dead dragon mobile unit. Back on Andromeda, everything is going okay until it's not anymore. Just one slip jump away from Acheron when a relief ship, which was holding 53 volunteers and 12,000 metric tons of medical supplies, goes missing. It's an old ship with outdated navigation systems and probably just got lost. Becca decides to make a split. She will take the Maru back to look for the lost ship, and Harper takes over Andromeda to get the convoy to Rodina. After ziplining their way to the Nietzschean stronghold and after discovering that they've been discovered, Dylan uses a small grenade to blast their way into the compound. They disable the automated defense gun shooting at them, but Dylan suspects that there are going to be more. They make their way to the control room where Dylan gets a schematic readout of the compound and Dylan leads the way to missile control. On the Maru, Becca finds the missing ship as well as three other Nietzschean ships which are attacking the unarmed freighter. Becca draws the fire away while the supply ship makes its way to Slipstream. Now Becca turns to deal with the Nietzscheans rather than lead them right to the convoy. She makes quick work of two of them. She has taken damage and the main power plant and life support are offline. With one ship left, she deploys proximity mines, though the Maru's computer warns her that they may be a little too close themselves. Both ships take damage, and it will take Becca four hours to fix either the engines or the weapons. Captain's choice. She chooses to fix the engines and get out. Meanwhile, on the Maru, Harper is starting to get really worried that Becca hasn't met up with them yet. As Becca works to fix the Maru, she receives an incoming transmission. It's the Nietzschean fighter from the other ship. It's squadron leader Pavardi Quechua. And surprise, it's a woman. Quechua offers to accept Becca's surrender and that they'll probably just let her go when this whole mess is all over. Becca doesn't trust her at her word as a Nietzschean and also deduces that her ship has taken damage too. And the only reason she hasn't destroyed her already is probably because her weapons are also down. Now it's a race to see who can fix their guns first. Down on the planet, Dylan and Tyr are still being chased around by Nietzscheans and leaving a trail of bodies in their wake. Phone call for Captain Dylan Hunt. Hey, guess who's behind this whole thing? It's our old friend, Kukulin Nez Pierce, and he wants Dylan to surrender before this thing gets out of hand. Dylan declines. Kukulin makes another offer. Hand over Tyr and Sazi, and he'll let him go and maybe even sit down and talk about this whole new Commonwealth thing. Otherwise, he'll just kill Dylan, destroy the Andromeda and the convoy, and let the plague run its course on the planet. He puts another bug in Dylan's ear by suggesting that if he really trusts Tyr, he should ask him about what really happened on Engaredo. On the Andromeda, Harper is becoming increasingly worried that Becca has not returned. Dylan now demands the truth about what he took from the Drago Katzoff, and if it's not the truth, he will kill him. Okay, he took the remains of Drago Musevi. Why would he steal a corpse and hide it on the Andromeda? The Nietzscheans believe that someday the genetically reincarnated progenitor will arise and unite the Nietzschean prize. Having the 70s remains is the only way to verify his identity. 
The remains of Dragon Museveni is the only thing that Nietzscheans value more than their own lives. Tyr then asks Dylan why he is so determined to restore the Commonwealth. Dylan says because of the Magog invasion. Tyr says that he is actually just trying to reshape the universe to his will. Tyr says he also knows that Dylan was never going to kill him. Dylan responds with a you don't know me and points his force lance at Tyr's chest. Back on the Maru, the girls get chatty. Quechua admires Becca for her mission to restore the Commonwealth. Becca asks why she's a pilot since all Nietzschean women are supposed to stay at home and have babies. Quechua reveals that she is barren and her lot in life is to be a fighter to raise the stock of her family's genes. But things get edgy as the repairs are proving difficult so they cut transmissions for now. The Andromeda exits slipstream into the Acheron system to the welcome of a Nietzschean fleet. It's an ambush. Harper is ready to let the Nietzscheans have it. On the Maru, the girls get chatty again, but Quechua does most of the talking. She tries to embed a computer virus in the transmission, but Becca catches it. She claims it was just to disable the Maru, so she wouldn't have to destroy her. If she just lets her go, it would be seen as a defeat and a black mark against her entire family. Back on the planet, Dylan is ready to hand Tyr over. They meet with Kukulin and his men to make the transfer. Dylan and Tyr get into a heated battle of words, and then Tyr breaks his restraints, hits Dylan, kills a couple inept guards, and makes a break for it. Dylan has disappeared too. Kukulin realizes he has been had and demands Tyr be brought back alive, but Hunt can be used as target practice. On the Andromeda, Harper wants to fight and scratch and claw his way through the Nietzscheans, taking down as many as possible no matter what the cost. But Trance and Rami convince him to defeat the Nietzscheans by spoiling their plot, even if it means their own deaths. Tyr and Dylan meet back up and head to the Missile Command Center. Dylan saves the Andromeda by using the Nietzscheans' own missiles against them. Quechua hells Becca one last time and says it's been real. But Becky gets her weapons online and fires first, and looks on with regret as Quechua's ship goes bluey. Kukulin and a few of his good men corner Dylan and Tyr in the command center. Dylan plays his last card as he starts to target themselves with the missiles. Kukulin folds like a cheap tent and lets them go, as well as calls off the dogs attacking the convoy. But first, he makes sure Dylan knows he has made a new enemy. Once everyone is safely back on the Andromeda, Tyr makes mention of the fact that the ship is no longer accepting his access codes to storage area 51. He is not pleased. But Dylan says that if he wants the corpse of Dragon 70 back sometime in the future, he may be willing to let him have it, all depending on the shape of the universe. The end. So it's Quechua, huh? Yep. I was totally wrong. That's all right. Okay. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. Well... I didn't hear. I was trying to restore some of my systems over here. So oh, okay. I wasn't really listening. Okay, to so all right. I should have just let it go then. Yeah. Uh, by the way, good news. Okay. I'm less than an hour from having mine up and going. Oh, great. I'm. How you doing over there? You know, I'm. I'm really ahead of the game over here. I feel like. Okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm probably gonna have mine done first. Mm. All right. Well, let's look over some observations then. All right. The episode. Uh, okay. First thing I want to bring up. Dylan, did it not seem like he was surprised by the base defenses? I mean, they, they, they know they're storming the castle, basically. Yeah. He has a printout of what to expect. He has the plans going in. He walks around the corner, and he's like, oh, God. You know, and he backs out, and he, he's looking on his deal, and he knows exactly what's in there. 
because he's he knows what they are. <laughs> I, I assume he's seeing a readout of it. Yeah, but but does he? Does he know exactly what's in there, or does he know what was in there 300 years ago when it was a high guard missile battery? Well, I. It just it seemed to me like he, he started rattling off whatever that gun emplacement was that was barring their progress. Hmm. It just it it felt like he, he knew exactly what it was, but yet he seemed surprised that it was there. And so my question is, uh, okay, they brought a zipline hook, <laughs> but they didn't bring enough charges to take out these gun emplacements that they knew were going to be along the way. I mean, they're sitting there firing at it with their, their gospel guns, you know. It just seems like, you know, lob a grenade, take it out, move on to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe they weren't there before. Maybe these are new. The Nietzscheans installed these. These aren't high guard. I, I assume that would have to be the case. That, that's the only way that it could be a surprise. Because you're right, he did have the whole technical readout. And, and maybe I misunderstood it, but I thought that those were all, that was all high guard specs. He was not aware of their presence there? Okay, well, maybe so. I saw it differently, but anyway, that's just me. Okay. Um, if you're walking through the forest and you hear someone whistle at you, don't stop and look. Find cover. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it might be Tyrannosazi there with a huge gun. Yeah. Something tells me this isn't the only time we're going to bring up these goons that Kukulun has working for him <laughs> this evening. Uh, I, I love the line. Authorization code, shut up and do what I tell you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Man, if they had this on the Enterprise, any of the Enterprises, mm -hmm. episodes would have gone so much more smoothly for the Starfleet crews. Yeah. Instead of having to remember authorization codes <laughs> and then having to back them up with a second person or a third person right right <laughs> I wonder if these are actually uh, if, if the if the code itself is authorization or if it's just voice authorization does the Maru just recognize that it's Becca well or did she actually at some point say okay setting up <laughs> command codes what would you like your command code to be Shut up and do what I tell you. Well, uh, honestly, the, to the first part of your your query there, okay. uh, if it was voice authorization, well, she she told it what to do, yeah. and then it rebuts, right? And then she has to do authorization code. Shut up and do what I tell you. <laughs> so I, I think voice print may be out of the equation. Honestly, I think what we're looking at here is is Becca. Basically making the password one two three four five, <laughs> which is awesome. I, I like it. All right. <laughs> What's wrong with that password? Oh, nothing. And how did you know the password to my email? It, is it the one of your spaceship? <laughs> no. Because I might be done here in just a second. No. <laughs> no. Um. Yeah. I. I I think it would be really awesome if that was the case. That she just set it up for, shut up and do what I tell you. That's all you have to ha have to say. I want to see that scene. <laughs> or she's setting it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because she's probably got like users manuals just out everywhere, all over the place. She's been on, uh, she's been on hold for with customer service for probably the last three days. 
and yeah, she's just she's had it up to here by this point. So we're just gonna reset everything <laughs> to something easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to see that certain laws are universal, at least in this universe, uh, because we know that on the Andromeda, the automated defenses are just terrible. True. It's good to see that the Nietzscheans' automated defenses are also terrible. Yes. Just can't hit anything. Um, obviously, you know, it, it is something that we're talking, we've had these in-depth discussion about AI and how complicated their programming is and how sophisticated they are and how lifelike they are. And yet these defensive companies can't hire an IT staff or a programming staff sophisticated enough to be able to hit moving targets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this seems like a bit deficient, doesn't it? Yeah, they really do seem like they're just kind of shooting randomly into open space. If they kill someone, cool. One less one to worry about. Yeah. If not, well, at least it's a deterrent, right? Well, yeah. Is that what it is? I, I, I guess a deterrent. That, that's a good point. It's I, I hear you talk about that makes me flash back to the the season finale of season one with Red Bim poking his head out of the. <laughs> I see Red Bim poking his head out of the bushes, just looking around with stuff bullets flying around his head. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, useless. <laughs> just totally useless. It just slows someone down a little though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really happy to see that our look with the show into the future, 3,000 years into the future, uh, is going to coincide with the reser- resurgence of the beehive as a popular hairstyle. Is that what that was? <laughs> close enough. <laughs> okay. It was close enough to a beehive on okay. uh, Quechua. Okay. So, yeah, uh, from this point on, instead of Quechua, I will refer to her as beehive. Oh, okay. Okay. And, and then, too, I... I did notice, has Tyr, in all of his exploits against the Drago Kassoff, is he had enough of an impact on the Drago gene pool that, I mean, it's, is it a measurable impact that Tyr is having on them? Because, honestly, some of Kukulin's troops, uh, <laughs> they looked a bit seasoned yeah. to be frontline troops or part of Kukulin's in you know immediate entourage. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were uh, they were older. A little bit. A little past their prime. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they were. Uh, is is that Tears' fault? I mean, has he had that big of an impact on their their numbers? <laughs> you know what? I think it just goes back again to. Uh, <laughs> Tyr has raised the bar so high for what we think a Nietzschean is supposed to be. Anytime we see another Nietzschean, we're just like, really? Is this the best you got? <laughs> is this the best your pride has to offer? Yeah. You know? I mean, uh. Well, you, you do notice no other Nietzschean is wearing chainmail. Mm-hmm. So that I guess that does tell us something. Mm-hmm. They just don't take care of themselves the way Tyr has. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's clear. I wonder if the chainmail was a Kodiak thing, or if he just really liked it. <laughs> you know, maybe he went to uh, some medieval museum somewhere and was like, "I like that get, look." Get me some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, the the last thing I wanted to bring up was is uh, why not shoot Dylan before he taps the the uh, the fire button on his arm there on his wrist. His little wrist pad. Yeah. Why not tap? You know, shoot him before he can hit it four times. Well, I mean, how many guns are in the room? Yeah. 
I think, you know, part of the thing was Cucullin wasn't, he had not been given the opportunity to monologue yet. That is true. So he was kind of still waiting for that. And if he shoots him, then there's no reason to monologue. So that's why he's trying to get him to stop hitting the buttons. It's like, hold on, hold on. I got some things I got to say. Don't do it. No! You know? <laughs> and uh, now he just kept pushing the button. Yeah. That's that's a brilliant explanation. And every time he pushes the button, that just adds more monologue to Colin. And he's like, now I have more I have to say, but you're giving me less time. <laughs> I like that as an explanation, okay. actually. Okay. It makes perfect sense from the villain standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Brilliant. Villains are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So enough observation. What did we learn from this episode, Ryan? Um, I think it, I, I couldn't decide whether to put this in the in the previous segment or, but I, I decided to save it for now because it kind of, in a way, is sort of a making fun of point, but I think it's also kind of serious. Have we seen this level of arrogance from Tyr? So, I mean, we know that he's arrogant. This is not a surprise to us. But, I mean, this was like a whole different level. Yeah, well, I, th I think in, in a couple of episodes that we've gotten here in the second season, we've seen that. It, it started to show up in Last Column at the Broken Hammer. Okay. Tyr was being not gregarious, but... He, there were several times where he was in the middle of action and he's grinning and he, it's like he knows he has the upper hand on this. And then in this one, we see it like, well, you're bringing it up. Mm -hmm. It was unavoidably noticeable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of hubris on Tyr's part, and which I think plays very well into where we end up with, where Tyr ends up at the end of this episode. But, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge amount of arrogance that has been building, mm -hmm. and now we're seeing it coming out in this episode. Right. Well, and then, I mean, it's, it's arrogance, but it also, there's just flat-out defiance. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's deception. There's just, there's all these things. Uh, now, granted, some of that Dylan was in on, but, yeah. you know, there's, there's yeah, there's all of this. But you can't tell me Tyr didn't enjoy <laughs> knocking Dylan down. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, Dylan was kind of slow to get up. Yeah, it yeah, he was. He was. It wasn't just one of those down and up kind of things. Normally, yeah, Dylan was just. But, but even through all of it, you know, still with his with his arrogance and defiance, he kind of has room to talk, because it worked out. Maybe sometimes it worked out in spite of him, but I mean, think about the the situation with Dylan wanted to take a prisoner and get the codes from them. Tyr's idea was, let's just kill them, take their little TV radio, and we'll decipher the codes from it. He, he didn't let Dylan in on that part of it. He started whacking people. <laughs> you're right. And then, yeah, but then he, doesn't, then he doesn't tell them until it's already done. You know, you're mad at me. Oh, by the way, here's all your codes that you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. He, he was being underhanded. Mm-hmm. With Dylan, yeah. Even though they both were headed headed toward the same goal. Now, at the end of it, though, when they both show up in the command center, and 
they both have that that kind of that awkward exchange, mm -hmm. and then they both kind of come to an agreement that it was a misunderstanding. Yeah. Did that feel manufactured, or, or was that a was that a genuine misunderstanding? I wasn't sure how to take that whole scene. I think it, it may have been a genuine understanding, maybe not as dramatic of a misunderstanding, but I mean, you're just kind of where you been. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Um, and then once Dylan presents the idea that they're jamming our signals, then Tyr, he just says, I'll buy that. Yeah, all right. Let's go with that. Let's move this along. Let's just go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. All right, yeah. That's that's kind of how I was looking at it. I didn't know if I didn't know if they were trying to act up the misunderstanding part mm -hmm. or if they were just still showing that these two are kind of still playing at odds even though they're together. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I noticed that, that we learned about, Rami is very uncomfortable with Harper being put in charge. <laughs> Did you notice that? Well, wouldn't you be? Well, I would be yeah. too, but yeah. It's just the... I love the facial expression that uh, Lexa, mm -hmm. Lexa Doe gives when she's put in that position when, when Harper says, or, or when uh, it's Becca. Becca's leaving the ship and says, Harper, you're in charge. And it's just that facial expression was just like, oh, I don't like this at all. <laughs> I would do a better job. <laughs> and I'm the AI, you know. Um, but it, what, I, what I really found interesting about it is because we learn a little bit more about Harper in this mm -hmm. episode. Because here he's faced with uh, the needs of the convoy. You know, they, they have to they have to carry out this escort mission. There's billions of lives at stake. And uh, he's also faced with Becca may be in trouble. And his his connection, his sentimental connection is to Becca. So he's put in this position of making the choice between the convoy or going and finding Becca. And it's interesting that in that moment, he makes the humanitarian call. He decides to go ahead and, and continue forth with the mission. Which isn't necessarily a, a big step for Harper, but I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of a... It showed a little bit of growth out of the character, especially when you consider the position that he's in. Because once it, once everything hits the fan and the ship is in danger, you know he has to be shown the bigger picture mm -hmm. uh, in order to protect the convoy. You know he can't go out in a blaze of glory, and, and so again he makes the call to do the right thing. You know, even though this this is a man that's facing a very grisly death, <laughs> mm -hmm. he could have very easily said, "Well, he did say, you know, damn the torpedoes, mm -hmm. full speed ahead, and we're we're going to take as many of these suckers out with us as we can." That seems like a call that Harper would have made in that situation, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, he he listened to reason, and actually ends up making a, a decent call as a ship's captain. And so I thought it it, it shows us a little bit of growth in the Harper character. Yeah, it definitely wasn't something that, that he... It wasn't his first inclination, by any means. I mean, he had to be very heavily persuaded over the course of a couple of different cutbacks to the Andromeda Command, command Center. Yeah. Command deck. There, where Rami and Tramps are really trying to persuade him to do the right thing, or what they perceive to be the right thing. Yeah. But, it, it, but that's the thing, mm -hmm. is... It is a couple of times, a couple of scenes, where they have to kind of talk him down. Mm -hmm. But this is Harper we're talking about. And if anything, he has shown himself to be extremely stubborn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, given the choice, you 
you can kind of sign on, you can trust him to make the right choice, ultimately. Well, and, and this isn't really a new thing, though. We've seen this with Harper a lot, where he is, he is just bent on doing something that is going to be disastrous. But as you say, he's just so stubborn. That's what he's got in his head. That's what he's going to do until someone, by the end of the episode, whether it's Rami or Tyr or Rev Bem or Trance, somebody talks him down. Somebody talks some sense into him. Yeah. Uh, the time when he was refusing to even help work on the ship. Rami had to talk him out of that and get him out of that, and then he stepped up and did the right thing. When he was just going to let himself die uh, being attacked by the Magog, Tyr had to pull him out of that, and then he stepped up and did the right thing. Yeah. Uh, the Harper 2.0, when he was going crazy over the Magog, uh, Rev Bim, the Magog, had to, had to talk him out of that, and he stepped up. Yeah. So and now in this episode we have it again. And I, I, but my thinking, my thinking of the character is, if we go back even earlier than what you're talking about, we go to some, some, you know, third, fourth, fifth episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? The fifth episode in uh, a- Angel Dark Demon Bright. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he does exactly what he sets out to do. Yeah. And destroys thousands of Nietzscheans. Right. So he. You know, he single-mindedly, stubbornly held to that, and ultimately Dylan went along with it. It happens, and then you see in him, he realizes, I I went further than I wish I had. Well, I mean, isn't that the consequence of rash decisions? Yeah. And, and I think what we have is, it is such a good thing that Harper has a strong support group around him. Good people around him, Because, yeah. you know, they always usually say, go with your go with your first instinct, go with your gut reaction. Mm-hmm. If Harper did that, it would be disaster for him. Over and over, well, it would be disaster for him probably once, because he would end up dead. He would be dead. <laughs> no, you're right, but, you're right. But because he has this strong support group and all these other people around him that are good decision makers... And because like all of these things that, that we just talked about, going through all these different episodes and all these situations that he's been in, his first inclination is a bad decision. You're right. You're right. <laughs> it's always someone else that ends up pulling his chestnuts from the fire. Yeah, exactly. So that right there is kind of so thinking about... You basically, have, you've undone everything good I thought about Harper for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is... But it's, you're right, you're but right. He, but he can be reasoned with, and he can be talked out of these horrible decisions. But is that someone that you want in command of your vessel? Someone whose first inclination is almost always to do a horrible thing. Whether it's selfish motive, and even in just well, this Well, hold on. Episode, the, the, the thing is, the, the first thing that, that gave me pause and made me think about this was... You know, Becca is the closest person to him on that ship. Mm-hmm. And his gut reaction is she's probably in trouble. Yeah. And, and she probably needs help. But he easily makes the decision, let's stick with the convoy. You know, we have a responsibility here. And I feel like that's where we saw the growth. Is, is without his back to the wall, when it came to a command level decision, he made the right decision. Yeah. Now later on, he had to be talked, you know, down from the ledge. Right. And, and you're right. It, it, that was kind of more to the old Harper. Mm-hmm. 
you know, with with that one though, about going back for Becca or staying with the convoy, it was definitely a, a much less dramatic switch from one way to the other. But his again, his first inclination is, we got to go back and find Becca. Rami says, I can't tell you what to do. You're in charge here. If you give me the command, we'll do whatever you want. But here's the situation. <laughs> well, let's think about this for a yeah. moment. <laughs> These are the facts, yeah. Harper. Yeah. And then listening to the facts, Harper realizes what he needs to do. And, and that was good. That's a good thing. Yeah. But it, then again, it, it's not because that he knew what the right thing was and he had to, to make sure he was doing the right thing. He had to, if Dylan is in, in that situation, what's Dylan going to do? He's, you know, he's going to do the right thing. Right. You don't have to reason with him. So you're right. You know, quit twist. Tw- you're in the other ship, but you're twisting my arm. You don't have to convince me. Okay. Harper hasn't grown any more than I thought he had. No, no, I don't think that's. I don't think that's true either. I mean, the, the, just the fact that you can um, talk to him and and reason with him. I mean, that even if it's not long-term growth over this last season and almost a half. It's still a little bit of growth within each episode. Yeah. Even if the next day he wakes up and he's that selfish, stubborn, annoying guy again, you know. That can't happen. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Well, we'll see. But, uh, no. I mean, I think there definitely is growth. And I can't imagine that after a situation like this, this, this would, you would think this would have to stick. Yeah. This this is a this is the biggest. He's got millions of lives in the balance yeah. here. So yeah, I mean when they were on the, the Magog world ship, that was a big deal. But it was just them. Yeah. And and he was basically only in charge of himself. And Tyr had to slap him around a little bit to get him out of it. Right. Because you know he, Harper could have just hung there on that wall and died. And whatever, Tyr goes back to the Andromeda. They carry on the mission without him. This is something Harper, he he is in command. He's in charge, making decisions that are that's affecting literally millions of people, not just himself. Right. So, and that's usually the only kind of decisions that Harper makes are the ones that affect just himself. Yeah. Uh, they may affect other people. But he thinks of it of how it affects him. He's very kind of selfish in his, yeah, his reflection. Egocentric. Yeah, egocentric. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, we we haven't talked about this in a while. The slipstream. I have a question about slipstream. Again? Yeah. Again. I thought we. I kind of thought we settled this. I did too. Um, I'm kind of wondering how slipstream works. <laughs> Again? In, in, let me let me qualify that, in a convoy situation. Because we know Ooh. that when you are in slipstream, it's all about the pilot. Yeah. And they're feeling their way through the slipstream. Yeah. Do all of these pilots have to feel the same thing? Or are they all just going in a slipstream point and then... They're all feeling their own way, eventually ending up at the same point. Uh, no, that, that's an excellent point because every every pilot's going to have potentially a different experience, mm-hmm. and it, 
different decision making processes. Mm-hmm. Um, some are going to arrive early, others are going to arrive way late mm-hmm. from what our current understanding of slip, slip space is, right? Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That, or they're just going to get lost and... <laughs> well, they're not going to get lost. They're pilots. They're rated. They, they'll get there. Okay. It's just some are going to be earlier and others are going to be later. And then there's going to be that, you know, that median that's right. going to make it roughly the same time. Right. But yeah, suddenly now a convoy of, say, 30 ships or mm-hmm. 50 ships or however many ships it is. That becomes a very lo- very large logistical problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> navigating slip, slip space with them. The only thing I can think of is that maybe somehow they're linked to each other. Slaved to each other? Yeah. Maybe. But, but that would require AI involvement, and an AI cannot be involved. Well, but it, it's, it's not a matter of... You have the one pilot... That's that's piloting the let's call it, you're saying the slave okay so you got the master ship okay and it's it's piloting the slipstream it's the one piloting the ship the the slipstream the rest are all just piggybacking right so if they if they all enter slip space at the, relatively the same time mm-hmm. okay uh, we we have the situation with the lost ship um, Rami attributes that to its its navigation systems being outdated potentially the slave circuit not working yeah. properly. Maybe. Okay. Or or then on the other hand, what does a navigation system have to do with slipstream if it's all just supposed to be by intuition and feel anyway? Yeah, but, but it's happen. intuition and feel by a live pilot. Yeah. Telling a computer what to do. Right. That could work. I'm telling you, man, we should write a technical manual for the Andromeda universe. Somebody needs to. Somebody needs to. Help us out, please. <laughs> But no, that okay. That that really is about the only way you could make a convoy system work. Mm-hmm. Is is have all the ships slaved to the decision making process of one live pilot. That's okay. really the only way you're going to keep them together. Because I didn't see any Bucky cables. No, <laughs> there weren't any Bucky cables. We haven't seen Bucky cables in a since long the time. pilot. Yeah. Since the pilot. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We had them in the well second or third episode, I think, too. Hmm. They must have run out of Bucky cables. Maybe so. Okay. All right, so let's talk about Tyr for a second. Uh, he's putting an awful lot of faith in the return of the progenitor, don't you think? Well, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think he is. Or, or is he perhaps just setting himself up or setting up his line uh, as like a dynasty for power? I mean... He doesn't really say. The progenitor is going to show up at some point. Mm-hmm. He may be alive when it sh- when he shows up. He may not be. Mm-hmm. Is he just positioning? Well, that that is really all he's doing. He's positioning himself for power. And and whether or not it's him, he doesn't know. He may be in power when the progenitor shows up. But realistically, is he setting this up for his family to be able to dictate whether the progenitor is authentic or not? Well, I mean, I think he's. He's looking out for his pride, himself and his pride, first of all. Because we go back to Double Helix, we know that... Uh, well, pride, he's just himself. Well, he's going to try to recreate the pride. I mean, that's why, okay. yeah. that's why he took a wife there from New York of pride. Oh, that's right. He Double yeah. Helix. Yeah. So, I mean, he, I wonder if we'll ever see that again. I can't imagine. No. Okay. But he, 
in in that episode, he explains a little bit of the Nietzschean mythology. Uh, I don't think to the extent that have we seen any of this about the progenitor and the the, geni- the genetic reincarnation? No. Okay, so this is the kind of the first time that it's been brought up okay, that I can but, recall. But we do know about the about the corpse of Dragon Musumi yes, and, yes, and him taking it. I mean, we've seen that in several episodes, but but we don't know why it. he's taking it. Right. But he talks about it in Double Helix. We see it all happen in Music of a Distant Drum. Yes. But in Double Helix, he's talking about. Uh, one of the reasons he's so upset with the Drago Katsoff is because the remains of Drago Museveni were entrusted to, to the his Kodiak pride. pride. Yeah, absolutely. The Drago Katsoff pretty much just destroyed the Kodiak pride and took the remains for themselves. So mm-hmm. he sees them as, this is mine. It's not stealing if it's mine. Yeah. Unless you're on that drift where you're not allowed to steal things. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a citizen. Right, right. So, but anyway, I, I, I think it's, I don't, it, it's hard to tell with here because sometimes thing or things are about position, sometimes it's about power, but it's also personal. Yeah. And I think it's, I am not saying this to exclude any of the other motives, but I do think that it is definitely personal. Oh, absolutely. Those are his. Those remains belong to him. Well, he lost his family in part because the Drago wanted to take those remains mm-hmm. and destroy the Kodiak pride. So absolutely, yeah, this is personal for him. Mm-hmm. It's also a, you know, it is also a power trip for him, though, isn't it? Because Dylan alludes to the fact that, I don't think they say it for Tyr, but that is what's inferred. Tyr and Dylan both are trying to reshape the universe mm-hmm. for their own purposes. Right. Um, Dylan is perhaps taking the moral high road in that regard. Tyr is a bit more ambivalent, I guess. But you're right. In his own way, I mean, he is justified in the course that he's taking in trying to reshape the universe so that he has a position of power. And I don't know that I'm, that I'm making any real point with that. It's mm-hmm. just that I, I'm just saying it out loud. Okay. Uh, what you just said, too, about Dylan, um, his reason for for wanting to reshape the universe to his will or to reestablish the Commonwealth. And his answer, I thought, was very interesting. You know, it's he almost looks at Tyr like he's an idiot. Why would you be asking me that? You know why I want to do this. Because there's... Trillions of Magog headed our way. I want to say, whoa, 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 wait, wait. We only learned that about six or seven weeks ago. Right before, <laughs> or after. Yeah. Sorry, after. What, what was your reason for the whole year before yeah. that? <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, I just kind of feel like I caught Dylan in a lie. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. There's a lot going on between these two. Mm-hmm. And they've been building to it for a while. Now we, we it's kind of come to a little bit of a head here. Mm-hmm. You feel like Dylan is the one that's justified in what he does, right? I mean, we kind of give Dylan a pass. Yeah. Because he has the larger moral landscape mm-hmm. in view, right? Yeah. Okay. Tyr is doing his own thing. And it's easy to just say he's doing his own thing. Because he's the only one left in Kodiak Pride. But you alluded to it earlier, and I, th- I think that sounds right. He, 
you know, Tyr is kind of justified in, in what he has done in taking Dragomyceti's remains from the Dragon Castle and setting himself up with a position of power because that's what he had before his pride was wiped out. But Dylan, even though we kind of give him the pass because he has this broader scope in mind of setting up the Commonwealth, he's kind of acted a little bit underhanded as far as Tyr's concerned, or, or with Tyr's situation, I feel like. You know? Okay. He, he's holding Tyr over a barrel, basically. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, yeah, you can have what you want after you've helped me out. <laughs> and that seems, eh, you know, it, it's a little bit skeevy yeah, when is, I'm thinking about it. But it's also how Tyr sold it to him. That is true. It is true. Think of the advantages that you can have by having these remains on your ship. You're not a target. No one's going to touch you. At least none of the Nietzscheans, anyway. Yeah, and that's a new thought for this episode, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have viewed the Andromeda as a target. Now that the Nietzscheans know that the remains are on board, mm-hmm. yeah, that ship's never going to get blown up by the no. Nietzscheans. No. Um, I don't know. It may get surrounded and boarded, and the remains taken and then destroyed. <laughs> True. So, I don't know. Maybe not completely well thought out. The Magogre will get on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's still got a target painted on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, either way, uh, yeah, I think yeah, Tyr is not doing it to benefit Dylan. It just happens to benefit him. But I think it's the same way the other way, too. Dylan... Yeah is not doing any of this to benefit Dylan, or to benefit Tyr, but if it happens to, then so be it. Yeah. It's just, it feels like the, the way the episode ended, with Dylan basically, you know, holding the, the keys to Drago Musebi's remains, mm-hmm. and, and Tyr being completely upset at having lost, you know, basically, the upper hand. Mm-hmm. It just, it... It feels like the series has kind of taken a dark turn. And I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying this feels like a turning point, mm-hmm. you know, in how this series is going. Mm-hmm. And we're coming up at the point where I don't know what's going on for very many more episodes. So I'm really mm-hmm. curious to see where the showdown is, is going to come to its final conclusion, to its final head. Yeah. You know, something that I just thought of is... I'm not sure that the, that last scene in this episode really was Tear. Because I mean it was Tear. I'm not saying it was someone else. But it's not what he did to me thinking about it now. That's not really Tear. I mean, because think about it. What you're a normal person. What do you do? Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I, I I like to think I am too. And I've been in this situation before. What do you do when you're in a hotel? And you go and you use your little card for your room key. You swipe it in the door and it doesn't work. What do you do? Swipe it again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. You do. You swipe it again. Maybe not. Let's skip all that, though. What, what's the next thing you do after that? You go back down to the desk. Yeah. You say, hey, my key doesn't work. Right. That's because we're normal people. <laughs> I don't think Tear goes back down to the desk and say, my key doesn't work. I think Tear busts the door open. Yeah. He goes and gets some ordinance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. That just all of a sudden kind of seems strange to me that he would go straight to that Dylan. That he would approach to Dylan. And say, hey, yeah. 
by the way, my uh, my authorization codes to the storage unit aren't working. You know anything about that? I kind of think Tyr would probably just what he would say is nothing. Yes. And he would figure out a way to break in. Yeah. And and get him somewhere else because obviously Rami's not watching. We if we know anything from past episodes, Rami doesn't watch anything that's going on on the ship. Right. So <laughs> so he could he could bust in there, get the remains out, take them, hide them somewhere else. No one would ever be the wiser. And as far as Dylan's concerned, he's still in complete control. Yeah. All Taylor has to say is security mode. In the hallway, and break in. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, I, I guess the question I want to ask is, and, and I know I'm not going to get an answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are we going to get a conclusion to this particular situation? Simple question. Did you want me to give you an answer? You yes said, or you no? Said you're Just not yes or no? An you said you're not going to get an answer. I know, and I'm not going to get an answer. <laughs> I'm just giving you the answer you wanted. But, all right, all right. Um, so let's move on. I'd like to talk about the, the situation there on the, the standoff with with Ketula and and Becca. Oh, Beehive. Okay. Yes, that's right. So something that was that was in the conversation, something that we learned. It was we learned a little bit more about Nietzschean culture. Um, it's it's disturbing to me. So here you have this Nietzschean woman who is barren, when normally her job would have been to stay at home and have babies. So now her job is to be a fighter. And everything that she does, it, it all has an effect on her family and her family line, the genealogy of things and, and whether or not the the males I guess in her family line are would be uh, would be good mates or not seems like a lot of pressure yeah it, it really highlights uh, the point that Becca makes is gee you, you Nietzsche and sure do you love your genealogy mm -hmm. well yeah genealogy is everything mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't matter how rich you are uh, it doesn't matter how successful you are in in enterprising endeavor of any kind. If you don't have the genes to back it up, you're not good breeding stock. So genealogy is everything. So it really does make a lot of sense. It's interesting that Becca says, I thought you Nietzscheans killed all of your defectives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is, Boy, that raised the hair. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it sure did. It did. Yes, it did. Um so, okay, obviously there's a legend about that somewhere along the line, a mythology or, or an untruth that has become popular in thought about Nietzscheans. Um, well, but the, she, she corrects her, and she doesn't say Nietzscheans don't do that. She says Drago Katzoff don't do that. Really? Okay, I missed that detail. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, that, that's interesting. So it, it could be a Nietzschean practice in other prides. But, okay, so for, for the Gregor Kassoff now, genealogy is too important. And so it, it actually makes a lot of sense. So if you're not going to kill them, give them a chance to make the rest of the family look good. Mm -hmm. And so if they're successful in battle, awesome. Yeah, 
and, and so that makes that statement that Becca makes of you sure love your genealogy, it gives it some weight. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you know, if you can't breed, that's fine. You can still contribute to your family's well-being and their ability to continue on that line. So, yeah, I, I kind of like that as, as, a, as a learning point for, I thought, for Nietzscheans in general. But as you say, it it's, could just be for the Dragon Castle. I think that's kind of cool. In the end, either way, she still gave her family a black mark. She by was dying? Just, she was destroyed by a kludge. Yeah. Yeah, she was. Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, black mark it is. You know, hmm. She didn't uh, raise the stock much, did she? I, I think it's interesting about her as a character, though, that she respects Becca. Yeah. That's a bit of a stretch for really any Nietzsche in the main for a common kludge mm-hmm. like Becca is. Right. Becca's not a common kludge. Let's, let's face that. Mm-hmm. She's pretty awesome. So, yeah, the respect makes sense. And then again, it, it kind of doesn't. Uh, Ketchua's read her file. Well, reading a person's file isn't the same as getting to know the person. As she's talking with Becca, she really acts like she knows her. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I, I thought that was kind of an odd, but still entertaining and interesting that they would portray her character as being genuinely interested, concerned. Could, can we say concerned about her? Well, I have written down in my note here, I said, it, it appears to me that she really doesn't want to kill Becca. Right. I, I kind of believe that that was genuine. She tried to make any way possible to get out of having to do that. Yeah, and I have that written down, too. Mm-hmm. It, that's, it's, that's an interesting point. She's doing everything she can to not have to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes time, right there at the end, she's <laughs> well, she is concerned. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have any last messages that I could pass along for you? Mm-hmm. you know, that is not something that a cold uh, AI-type thinking Nietzschean that we've dealt with <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. the series so far. That's really not what they typically would do. Mm-hmm. Of course, I mean, we really don't know hardly any Nietzschean women. Um, we, well, who, we do, met, who do we, we know? We've met a few. Yeah. Tears wife. Yeah. Um, there was... Uh, Which she's... I want to use a word, but this is a family-friendly podcast, so I'm not going to. There was the uh, the princess. <laughs> she's not nice. Okay. Put <laughs> it that way. The, uh, the, the princess, you're right, uh, with the uh, molecular whip. Right. Hey, look at me, your remembering tag. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she was not molecular lash. Nice. Sorry, yeah, lash. She was not particularly nice. There was uh, until the end. Well, I mean, she made friends with Dylan, but you know, I'm not sure that means that she's friendly. Yeah. Um, oh, she, she friendly. Did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get it. Um, <laughs> Um, then we, we've also... Tears, Tears mother-in-law. Yeah, I was going to say the Orca yeah. uh, matriarch. Matriarch, yeah. yeah. Uh, she didn't seem particularly warm and cuddly. No. Yeah, but no. I mean, she's also older, so, you know, right. tired of dealing with all of these egotistical Nietzschean men all over the place. I mean, that would wear on you. Yeah, it could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could. Is that it? That's the three. Really? Yeah, and... And, now, and then now Ketchua. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe she's just 
Maybe she's just different. Maybe maybe being barren mm-hmm. or sterile, uh, m- maybe that has an effect on them. Do they feel entitled? Nietzscheans, in general, do they feel entitled? I think they absolutely have to. And so, so maybe with, with Quechua being barren, maybe she doesn't have that sense of entitlement because she knows that something has been uh, not taken from her. But yeah. But, but maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. It, it. She knows or she realizes that she owes other people something. Mm-hmm. And and she doesn't have... She isn't expecting it back herself. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. She knows she's not going to get something that is vital to Nietzschean existence. Right. So she owes that to someone else. Yeah, and part of the whole Nietzschean arrogance is the fact that they believe that they are perfect. They are the perfect human specimen. Yeah. She's not perfect, and she knows it. Right. Hmm. Still raises the hackles a little bit, as you as you alluded to before when right. you pointed out. But yeah, 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 deep down, you know she understands that. Hmm. Yeah, so we've seen something different here. We've seen a different kind of Nietzschean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe there's hope. Maybe sometime in the future we'll meet another Nietzschean that's nice. That would be interesting. Yeah. So, as always, we have a quote. Requested. One Mark V ECM unit, 1,000 kilometers of fullerene cable, one low-yield nuclear warhead. Purpose. Surprise party for foreign dignitary. Honestly, I don't know what to go, where to go with this quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to show the mentality of the special forces, you know, that held the base, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, hey, I don't know. It's it's too tongue-in-cheek, yeah. really. You know, there was something that I didn't notice until I was going over the, the transcript for this episode. Okay, what is that? And I think you just touched on it already, but it was that the motto, Uno Victus... Uno Salus Victus. Uno Salus Victus, thank you. That was the... That was the saying of this same group, uh, which was the Argosi Special Operations um, that made this quote. Yeah. The same ones. That had the base. Right. They had the base. Well, and the thing that I'm wondering is, when I first read this quote, out of context with the rest of the episode, I'm looking at this quote, and I'm thinking, okay, this this Argosi Special Operations, at first it sounds military. Yeah. And then when I read this quote, it sounds terrorist. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of does. Okay, but this base in this episode is a high guard base. Yes. Hmm. Now I'm confused. Um, I mean, he, he's using this... Uh, is, this is this a shadow group? Is this a... Is this the dark underbelly of the Commonwealth that we're getting a glimpse at? No, you know, it's like these are these are the guys they sure what is supposed to happen happens. Yeah. Well, to that that kind of leads into my my final thought on this episode. Okay. Was that you know, we have a saying that Dylan talks about with associated with Salus Victus. It's not about being safe. Mm-hmm. It's about being prepared. Right. Now. That sounds very high guard and idealistic, but with what we're talking about, this is kind of a, um, you know, 
overthrow of small governments, set up friendly dictators type of unit, <laughs> that's that's pretty underhanded. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not about being safe, it's about taking risks. And, well, that really is kind of the theme of what we're talking about in this episode, as far as Dylan is concerned. Reshaping the universe. Mm-hmm. So, it, it's too much of a stretch to think the hard would stoop to that level. Where they would do the underhanded things in order to reshape the galaxies so that it was a safe place for the majority of people. Even though they're things that, if it were discovered, wouldn't necessarily be... You would be scandalous. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't looked at it that way. Right. Well, and I hadn't either until I until I noticed that in the, the transcript. Um, and you know what? Honestly, I don't have an answer. I don't know what to come away from that thinking because cause I'm not... I don't know. It's, the book, to me, just sounds like a terrorist organization. But Dylan is really talking them up. Yeah. This group, uh, whoever this group is, I mean, he's, he's drawing off of their ideology. Let, let me ask this. Is this is this the special operations group that he's a part of when we see him in action in Mobius before he gets the Andromeda Command? Hmm. I would need to go back and look. Yeah, I don't know, because I don't ever remember um, hearing this. The name. Yeah. Right, you're right. It was just basically high guard special ops, basically. <laughs> Black Ops, or I don't mm. No, if they did, then I missed it. Maybe we'll have to go back. Yeah. Maybe that's something we can come back to in the, in the episode. Maybe okay. we can clear that up. Um, you know, Una Salus Victus is really something that I think... I want to say we have different storylines, different plots in this episode, even though they're really all working toward one common goal, but we... Okay, we've got Tyr and Dylan on the planet. We've got Harper and Rami and Trance on the ship. And we've got Becca. But don't forget Rev Bim. He's on the planet in peril. So. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Hey, I, I hey we it. actually got his voice, though. Yeah, I know. We got his voice. Right, so he got paid. We we read about Harper McGoglar, but again. But, yeah, yeah. You know. he was busy. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was really something that, that all of them are going through in this episode. Um, when you look at Dylan and Tyr on planet, I mean, the missiles down on themselves, ready to just blow the whole thing up in order to come out victorious, even if it means they're dead. Um, Hart, he has to go through this too. Yeah. He knows that the right thing to do is to cover the convoy. And beat the Nietzscheans, even if it means sacrificing the Andromeda and all of them. You know, how far are you willing to go? Becca, I kind of, with not so much with Quechua, because, I mean, that's that's just kind of a, a showdown. That's a... It's kind of like what we're about to have. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I forgot. Um, but I think she did have that moment when she decided to leave. Yeah. When she decided to leave the Andromeda. Just really willing to stick your neck out there. It's not safe, but it's what we got to do. Right. So you know they all had that moment, and probably if you look at just about any episode, um, they're probably going to have these moments. I mean, it's kind of what makes good TV, good storytelling. Right. You put your heroes in these impossible situations, and they somehow get out of it. So I I kind of thought that 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 theme 
just really carried through this entire episode. I'm not sure that's something that you can say about every episode. No, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I, I brought it up initially, the, you know, about being safe, about being prepared. That, as a lesson from this episode, I think is what I carry away from. And really like i really appreciate the just just the title of the episode and and like you said we got to see each of our characters in that situation where they were in peril but they carried the day you know they carried through with what they had to do because they were prepared or they were at least talked into making that right decision, you know and, and sometimes that's what it takes sometimes you know we wake up in the morning and we're ready to make right decision and 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 do what has to be done other days, we kind of have to help being talked into doing the right thing, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this that saying uh, and that title really, you know, it, it has an impact in, in each of our lives. So I feel like. I appreciate it for that. So, Brian, um, well, we haven't talked about what we thought about Una Salasventis. Okay. So, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and tell us. You first this okay. time. Why don't you tell us what you thought about this episode? All right, I will. Um, I really liked this episode, and I think the probably the reason um, the reasons for that were well, there were a lot of interesting things going on. There was a lot happening. It was really hard for me to. I was. I, I'm trying to condense my recaps when I write those up, and I with this one. What do you leave out? Uh, in, in just a, a 30 second clip of this episode so much happens so much that is pretty essential to the plot there's not a lot of wasted tape on the, in this episode I'm not saying there's no wasted tape there were some scenes that I cut but you know there's not a lot there's still so much into this episode um, the things that we learn about the universe Especially with Drago Musetni and his remains and the the progenitor, the genetic reincarnation. I mean, that's that's pretty big, heavy stuff as far as the ideolo the ideology and the mythology. You could almost say theology as for as far as the Nietzscheans well, go. Yeah, that's a great point because I I worded that on purpose. Okay. The fact that Tyr puts a lot of faith okay, yeah. in the resurgence of, the, or the reemergence of the progenitor, mm -hmm. or the return of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a, that is a that's a spiritual thing almost for the Nietzscheans. It really does feel that way, and if they're all as passionate about this as Tyr is, you know, there it's almost a, as much of a, of a religion as Wayism to uh, to Rev Bim. You know, I mean. The, they're really looking towards something. I mean, you could, you, it's like they're looking toward their Messiah is, is really what they are yeah. looking for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, this just kind of seems like, like a pretty big deal. Like this is really a big thing that all of the Nietzscheans are looking for. And um, the other, the other plot lines, I'm not sure they really had a huge impact. They were really just kind of a, something to drive the story along, uh, but they were all interesting. Um, and it's interesting to see Becca um, in her, her showdown, and Harper gets a chance in the captain's seat. Um, 
But to me, ultimately, it's about Tyr and Dylan and their relationship, what happens towards the end of this episode, and what we learn about uh, the remains of Dragon Museveni and why that has bred running through this series to this point. We've seen him talking about them, we've seen him stealing them, we've seen him, well, we've seen him stealing them, <laughs> you know, what happened when he stole them, and we've seen him storing them on the Andromeda, and I kind of feel like now we know why. So there's questions being answered, and with those questions being answered, more questions raised that you kind of feel like you're going to have to get an answer to. Yeah. Uh, no, and I have to I have to agree wholeheartedly. I did very much enjoy this episode for all the reasons that you just brought out. Uh, I really appreciate the treatment that they're giving this thread because beyond the worldship and the establishment of the Commonwealth as a thread mm-hmm. that's being woven throughout these episodes, this is the well, we've had so many episodes talking about it now. This is really what I'm most interested in mm-hmm. at the moment. And the way they left it off, I'm really looking forward to when they address this again. And so, yeah, I love it when a series will do this. When it will take these different threads and it will dole them out one episode at a time, give you a little more. And like you said, this one ends and, and you're really, your appetite is whetted to know where is this going. You know, and, you, and, you, and you feel like you've learned a lot. Now you want to see how it's going to end up. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the, the whole Tyr and Dylan uh, thread and the, and the, the discussion of Dragon Ball Uh I really enjoyed the the Becca and, and Beehive's story. I, I really appreciated that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know that's tongue-in-cheek, but, yeah, I did enjoy, really, that right. and, and what we learned out of it. Just, well, and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm going to. That's actually what, well, as you didn't apologize. No. <laughs> um, that's really what I remember this episode for, from before. Okay. Um, coming into it, uh, not that I forgot about what happened with Dylan here. I mean, that's definitely stuff that I remembered. But when I coming into this episode, I remembered, oh yeah, that's the one where where Becca and the Nietzschean woman square off against each other. So I mean, that's that's what I remembered. Yeah. Yeah, and turns out there's a, all this other cool stuff too. <laughs> Absolutely, it's really important, right? So, yeah, and, and then like I alluded to before, I think we got to see a little bit out of whether he did grow or not. It, maybe that's debatable. I think there's a little bit of growth there. I think we can both agree there. Maybe just a little bit. I think there was definitely growth. Okay. The question is whether he remembers next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. But yeah, so we got to see some of that too. I, I think this is a very well, all in all, it was very balanced between the different... You got enough out of every scenario that was playing out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and ultimately, the team, as a team, they, they worked together and they got the job done. And I think, I think it's a great episode. I will say this. It felt like the action in some places was just getting in the way of the story. Mm-hmm. I understand that that's kind of what Tribune wanted out of this show, is action first and foremost. But you've got such good story going on, you know, don't ha- don't just have action for the sake of action. And unfortunately, I, I think that's what we're going to get more of <laughs> as the series will continue on. Mm-hmm. But there's some solid storytelling going on right here. And I, and, and I really enjoyed the episode, not for the action. That was ancillary entirely, in my, in my opinion. 
it was the the advancement of the characters and the telling of the story, and I think this is a great episode because of that. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Ryan, uh, why don't you give the rundown on how we can get in touch with the show? And I think you and I have business to settle. Yeah, all right. Let's get this over with. If you're ready, then where can people get a hold of us? Uh, they can do so by sending, sending an email to drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. That's right, and we're also on social media, Facebook and Twitter, using the handle AndromedaPod, both of those locations. And I think you can get in on the Facebook here. Please. Yes, actually you can uh, contact us through Facebook if you so desire. And I've been posting episodes there. And uh, just, you know, little bits of information as it comes up. I'll pass it along here, too. Our home is Podbean. We are www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. That's where every episode of Drive Back the Night can be found. And they can also be found on poddirectory.com and on iTunes. So if you listen to us on iTunes, be sure to subscribe, give us some stars, or a review. We'd certainly appreciate it. And as always, we are an Age of Geek production that's www.ageofgeek.com and I guess uh, that just about hold on a second that just about wraps up next week is home oh yeah